like to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to join me in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. I'm going to read just one verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning as we continue to answer the ever-present question, why do we do what we do? What gets us out of bed? What keeps us engaged? What keeps us in the race, striving and straining to be more like Jesus Christ? I know that most of you in here probably read and study Plato. How many of you read and study Plato? How many of you are more, more probably more ready to play with Play-Doh than to read Plato? Yes, I We have some from both groups. Plato was defining man, and here's what he said. Man is an animal, biped, featherless, and with broad nails. Makes him sound like a monster, doesn't it? He said, that sounds like the guy sitting next to me, actually. Like a monster. Another definition that Plato wrote was this. Man is simply a being in search of meaning. Simply a being in search of meaning. I would venture to say that you, like me, and most of your interaction with fellow humanity realize this is a prevalent, this is a dominant reality. People searching for meaning. To a non-believer, the idea of for what cause, for what reason, or what purpose am I doing something is an open-ended and complex question. But for a believer... There is clarity within Scripture, and it is settled. And the Scripture declares our purpose in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31. I'll encourage you to look there with me. If you don't have your Bible, the verses will be here on the screen so that you can know this is God's Word. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he says this, Whether therefore ye eat, or drink, or whatsoever ye do, Do all to the glory of God. That is the bottom line of the Christian life. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, no matter how seemingly small or insignificant an act is, whatever it is that you or I are undertaking, everything should be done to the glory of God. Declaring to us that we are here For one primary reason, and that is to glorify God. I don't know that you can make a more general statement than that which is made in the 31st verse. To me, it's a very clear declaration of how believers just like you and I can live our best possible life. And I know, again, referencing interaction with humanity, not only do you see people searching for meaning, you also find that people are attempting to live their best possible lives. I don't know of anyone that has set out to live the worst life possible. They may have done it, but I don't think they set out to do that. And here in this verse, we find a primary motivation for each of us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I get out of bed? To what cause? What is my purpose? What is the meaning? It should all be for the glory of God. But that's not who we naturally are. In fact, the scripture tells us something that is a painful confrontation. 
If I were to say it in the most clear terms, it is bad news. And that is this. In our natural state, all of us come short of the glory of God. In our natural condition, there is nothing that we can do that glorifies God. In Romans chapter 3, in my estimation, the Apostle Paul is working like a prosecuting attorney. He is attempting, and doing a really good job, to tell the entire world that they are lost and they live underneath the penalty and the power of sin. His argument is incredibly effective. One of his summation statements we find in the 23rd verse of Romans chapter 3 where he writes this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now if we, as we are this morning, are attempting to understand 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever it is that we're doing, no matter how seemingly insignificant it is, we should be doing it for the glory of God, then we have to reconcile with Romans 3.23, which tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if we unpack that verse, we'll really grasp what is being communicated all is a very comprehensive word. It's all-encompassing. It's all-embracing. It leaves no one out, and it leaves no one behind. All have sinned. I think if we were honest, we would probably admit that we didn't make it the course of this last week without committing sin. Perhaps, if we were truly honest, we haven't made it thus far today without committing sin. But the Apostle Paul is not necessarily talking about those sins which you have committed, but rather he is talking about your sinful condition which you have from birth. Because Adam fell, all that had been born after him have fallen and carried the curse of sin. All encompassing, all embracing, comprehensive, no one left out, no one left behind, have a sinful condition, and they have come short of the glory of God. Come short of the glory of God. I think we understand what is being communicated by falling short, coming short of a goal. But if we really use the Bible word, and we jump back in time just a little bit to hear how it was used in this era and in this context, I think it enhances our understanding of what's being communicated. That term that is used in the Greek was used by Greek farmers. I don't understand much about farming, but I do understand this. You have to get the seed in the ground in time in order to enjoy the crop that comes from the seed. But this word, come short, was used in that century for a farmer who missed the season farmer who failed to get the seed in the ground on time, and thus he failed to get a crop. So if we were going to enhance our understanding of what is being communicated, perhaps we could grasp it in this way. For all have sinned and missed the season of the glory of God. In ancient Egypt, that term was used for those who were uneducated and could not read. So maybe this would enhance our understanding as well. For all have sinned and are illiterate of the glory of God, utterly lacking, bankrupt of the glory of God. That's what the word would have meant to the Apostle Paul. It was used in the financial world during this time, and it communicated as someone who was bankrupt, 
without anything, you say of all of these, the farmer and, and the ancient Egypt illiterate, this is the one that resonates with me the most, utterly lacking and bankrupt. In the financial world, we could enhance our understanding by saying this, for all have sinned and are utterly lacking and bankrupt of the glory of God. What is being communicated very clearly is that we cannot fulfill 1 Corinthians 10.31 in our natural state. In our sinful condition, we can't do it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I mean, that in and of itself is a series of study. The word that is used there for the glory of God is the Greek word doxa. It's where we get our understanding of doxology. Doxology is something that we sing in praise. It's something that we sing in honor of God, to glorify God, the doxology. To enhance it even another layer, we do know from Scripture there is the Shekinah glory of God. That's a major big word. That's a seminary level word. This is a great day to be here. You're learning stuff. What is the Shekinah glory of God? I really don't know that I could communicate to you what it is in my own terminology, but I can take you to Scripture and help you to grasp what it communicates. In the Old Testament, when the tabernacle was completed in Exodus chapter 40, the Shekinah glory of God descended on the tabernacle. In fact, when Solomon built the extravagant and opulent and beautiful temple, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 8 that the Shekinah, the glory of God, descended on the temple. And you may understand and remember that Moses, when he interacted, his face glowed. And you may remember from Scripture that the priests, even though they were ceremoniously cleansed and ready to go, when the glory of God descended, they could not inhabit the temple. They could not stay in that place. Even when we read of the birth of Jesus Christ, the glory of the Lord shone round about. When the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 is traveling on the road, he sees the glory of the resurrected Christ and he's blinded by his brightness. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being martyred and he's near death, he looks up into heaven and he sees the glorified God and he sees Jesus Christ standing ready to welcome him in. We understand just a little bit about the glory of God. So we have to grasp this verse. All, that's all encompassing, that's all embracing. No one left out, no one left behind. Have sin, are under the penalty they are carrying a sin-filled nature, and they are utterly lacking. They are bankrupt. They have missed the season. They are illiterate of the glory of God. They cannot, in a natural state, understand how to praise, honor, or glorify God. They cannot, in their natural state, enter into the Shekinah glory presence of God which indicates to me the only way to fulfill 1 Corinthians 10.31 is to know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. And it's a beautiful thing to realize that the Scripture points us back to the Gospel. In fact, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, living a sinful li- or sinless life, that's, that's really bad theology what I just did there, a sinless life, willingly laying down his life as a sacrifice on the cross, shedding his blood, dying, and conquering death in the grave by raising again. That's the good news. And in the great mystery 
of the cross, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when I place my faith in Christ and I confess my sins, is gifted to me, and my sin is paid for by Jesus Christ, so that now, when I stand before a holy God, he does not see me in my natural state, condemned under the penalty of sin, he sees me robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I can now glorify God through Jesus Christ. So this indicates to me another principle. If I am then a believer, and I am a follower of Christ, and Jesus is my personal Savior, then I live under this as a mandate. Everything that I do must be for the glory of God. The only way to be out from under that principle of life is to be lost, in which case it is impossible for me to glorify God. But if I know Jesus Christ, this is the mandate. This is a driving principle for my existence. Do all to the glory of God. There are only two things that any one of us can do with our lives at any given point, on any given day, within any given moment. And that is one to glorify God, or that is two, to be a reproach to God. In our natural state, we are at enmity with God. We are not glorifying God, which means we have some decisions to make. The mandate is simple. Everything that you do as a believer, no matter how seemingly insignificant or small it is, should be to the glory of God. How in the world do we do that? How do we make the right choice all the time when we struggle with things like what to wear, what to eat, who to be around? How do we establish systems of values and priorities in our lives that bring glory to God? I believe that the Bible never asks us to do something that we are not equipped to understand and accomplish. And I believe that we can go back to the Bible and answer some questions to acknowledge, to find out whether or not what we are doing is glorifying God. Here's a question we could ask. Does it edify? Does it build me up spiritually? The Apostle Paul, writing earlier in this letter, or or here in this letter to, to the church at Corinth, writes this in verse 23. All things are lawful for me. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. What he's communicating is simply this. It's possible. It's how we live. We are involved with a lot of life. We're spending our energy, we're spending our time on a number of things. As we build that system of value and priorities, here's what we have to understand. Never let the permissible, never let the allowable become the enemy of what we should be doing, of the essential things that we should be doing, those things which spiritually build us up. Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, and he told them this, approve things that are excellent in Philippians 1.10. Find the very best way to spend your time, effort, and energy, and you do that by asking, is this spiritually building me up? There are a lot of things we can do. I mean that. You say, nah, this is a pretty conservative church. There's like only three things we can do. Go to church, listen to preaching, and say no. I know it feels that way. There are a lot of things that we can do. All things are lawful for me, Paul said, but not everything is expedient. 
All things are lawful for me, but not everything spiritually builds me up. I have to approve those things which are excellent. Is this in which I am engaged in spiritually building me up? Now, I know that whenever we engage in something like this, we think to ourselves, so does that mean I can't watch college football? All I can do is go sit in a corner and pray and read my Bible. That's exactly what it means. Wait. Also, it means give offerings to the church. That third layer, it's in there. No, he's not saying the only thing you can do with your life is ask yourself this. Is this spiritually building me up? Or what is the opposite of being built up, being torn down? Or is this spiritually tearing me down? So if I were to say to you, I may at times be torn down spiritually by watching my favorite football team because I get so agitated by their performance then maybe I have a decision to make that this is causing me to be controlled by my carnal nature. This is tearing me down. I don't mean that we all have to live in this auditorium all the time and be spiritually built up, but this is a question that we have to answer. Is this building me up, spiritually speaking, or is this tearing me down? Here's another question. Does this have the potential to enslave me. You say, well, that's weird sounding. Stick with me just a second. The Apostle Paul wrote this four chapters earlier in this letter to the church of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. Same thought, right? That's 10.23. And then he says this, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I am not going to be mastered I am not going to be enslaved by any habit or activity. Now that's big. One author wrote this. It helps me to understand it. He said this. The persistent refusal to say no to an enslaving habit runs the risk of hardening your conscience so that you no longer feel guilty for that enslavement. And then... Others become more easy to justify, and pretty soon it can happen that the whole biblical concept of spiritual warfare and vigilance and self-denial and self-control drops out of your life. Are you aware that the principle of denying ourselves is all through the New Testament? Spiritual warfare, engaging and enduring hard things... Does this that I am engaged in, does this habit, does this activity have the potential to enslave me? Let me help you understand that scripturally speaking. The writer of Hebrews is telling us an Old Testament story. And he's teaching us something about Esau's failure. Esau made a major major error in his life. And the writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 12, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. So if the Bible says, you know, don't be a fornicator, we're like, right, that's bad. Don't be a profane person. Right, I don't want to be a profane person like Esau. We're not to think well of Esau. Esau is like a fornicator. He's like a profane person. What did Esau do? The Bible says this, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now, nobody in here is thinking, you know what I'm really desperate for? A morsel of meat. But for the Bible, that means this was desirable. 
Esau came back into the house, saw his brother sitting there. His brother was in the kitchen cooking. Now, there's probably a whole message in there. When Esau came in, he imagined that he was going to die if he did not eat. And he saw food there, and he said to his brother, I want that food. And his brother said to him, I will give you this food, but you have to give me your birthright. You have to give over to me dad's blessing on you. Your inheritance becomes my inheritance. Dad's blessing on you becomes dad's blessing on me. Now, not one of us sit here and think, that's a fair trade. A morsel of meat for your birthright. But in the moment, Esau's flesh latched onto him and took control. And he said, take my birthright. Have my inheritance. You get dad's blessing. Just let me eat. And I think at the bottom of the bowl of that porridge, he thought, oh, whoops. Man, was that not worth it. The porridge wasn't even that good. That's what's being communicated. Now, I'll enhance it a little further. The apostle Paul was writing to the believers at Philippi. And he says this in Philippians 3, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, he's crying. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. And now he's going to describe them in verse 19. He says, their end is destruction. Get this next phrase. Whose God is their belly. Does anybody really need that enhanced? They are under the control of their own desires and passions and lusts. They always capitulate to what their body wants and whose glory is in their shame. And get this, hey, they mind earthly things. If you are minding your manners or you are minding a parent or you are minding a teacher, you are under their authority. You are obeying their command. You are obeying them. And Paul says, listen, there is a group of people who have now become the enemies of the cross of Christ who, who have their belly, their own ambition, their own lusts, their own passion, their own desires. That's their God. That's who they worship. That is who they glorify. There are individuals who mind, they obey earthly things. They are completely mastered, controlled by the lusts of their flesh, and a lifestyle of this habitual activity dumbs them down, and they are weakened to the degree that they just capitulate to every wanton passion and lust of their flesh. If I'm doing that, I am not glorifying God. I have to answer the question, does this enslave me? Does it have the potential to enslave me? I love the Apostle Paul. I think If we could hear from the Apostle Paul here and now, we would be blown away by how straight he talked. But I know it's wrapped up in Bibleese, and it makes it a little harder for us to grasp. But here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. He's he's teaching something very important. He says this, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So here's what he's saying. Everybody who, let's just say this, everybody who wants to excel in athletics understands I have to be in control of my body. I have to be temperate. Moderation in every single thing. He says, we get that. Somebody who is straining to be an excellent athlete brings their body's desire under control. I cannot go eat a box of donuts. I want to eat a box of donuts, but I have a race to run. I want to eat nothing but carbs. How many of you identify with that? 
Yes, nothing, but why are all good things bad things? It's my, one of my first questions in heaven. Why? I want to do that, but I must be tempered in all things. Now, here's what he's saying. Just think about that, and now he brings it over into the spiritual realm, and he says this, so just like that, I run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. My body wants stuff. My mind races. My lusts are present. My passions are there. But I bring under my body. I bring it into subjection. I take control of my passions and desires. And the language is incredibly vivid. When he says, I bring under my body, he is literally communicating, I give it a black eye. I, br- I will not give in. And you know that feeling, right? Let's go back to donuts just for a second. I think we're all hungry now. It's just getting close to that time. And donuts are wonderful. They're shaped like little halos if you think about it. <laughs> You know that feeling, right? You walk into the office and some, some tempter has bought donuts and they're out. And you're like, come on, fighting for every inch of my waist here. And you keep bringing the donuts. And you walk by and somebody opens it and they have a wonderful smell. And you know inside of you that if no one was there, you would just go ill on that box of donuts, and it would be all over you, and you wouldn't stop. If it was okay, you wouldn't stop. If nobody looked, you wouldn't care, and you wouldn't stop. You'd eat all of them. But you walk in, and you have to say to yourself, no, thank you. I have an orange in my office. No, thank you. I have a sliced apple that's slowly browning in a sandwich bag at my desk. No, thank you. And here's what Paul is saying. Every day, my thought life wants to run away with me. And I have lust, and I have this carnal nature inside of me. And I realize that I have to say no. And if I'm ever going to glorify God, I have to bring my body under subjection. I cannot have my belly as my God. I cannot mind earthly things. I cannot be like Esau, who was so hungry that he sold off his birthright and the blessing of his father for one morsel of meat. That can't be my story I want to glorify God. Does it edify me or does it tear me down spiritually? Does it, does it enslave me or have the potential to enslave me? Does it evangelize? Does this thing help me reach the lost? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. Give none offense. Don't give any offense to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. We have to think this. What I am doing right now, does this harm my testimony before the lost? Does this communicate to a lost world that the gospel is impractical and ineffective? Jesus said in John 15, herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. Jesus said this. Everything that we do, We want to glorify God. And Jesus said, here is a way that my Father is glorified. Well, we're all ears, Lord. What is it? Bear much fruit. There are a couple of ways in the New Testament that a Christian can bear fruit. Galatians 5 tells us that we can evidence the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. 
As we are under the control of the Holy Spirit, those things such as love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, which is in there, are things that are the fruits of the Spirit. And if I bear those fruits, I glorify God. So I must be under the control of the Holy Spirit. If I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. All these principles are linked together in the Bible. There is another way that I can bear fruit and glorify God, and that is to see lost people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's spiritual fruit. And so I have to take into account, is what I am doing hindering my testimony of the saving grace of Jesus Christ before a lost and dying world. Does this evangelize? Does this edify spiritually or does this tear me down? Does this enslave me? Does this evangelize? And this, does this encroach on your conscience? Now I want to read just a few verses from 1 Corinthians 10. And I want you to just notice and I'll help you to notice it so you can doze off in between if you need to. 1 Corinthians 10.25 says this, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question, here are the three words, for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question, here they are again, for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, Eat not for his sake that showed it, and here they are again, for conscience' sake. We should abstain from certain practices for the sake of our conscience. How many of you identify with a guilty conscience? You say, are you kidding me? It's the whole reason I'm here. That's what drives me to church, a guilty conscience. I was raised in church. I've been a Baptist all my life. All I know is motivation by guilt. I understand. For conscience sake. Here is a reality. The scripture communicates to us truth. We have Bible principles. From Bible principles, we derive our convictions. Our convictions are based on biblical principles. To protect our convictions, we set standards. And the standards protect our convictions which are founded on biblical principles. Now, a whole lot of churches simply preach and teach standards, hope that it becomes a conviction, and hope that someday you understand that it actually came from the Bible. But biblical principles, we found our convictions, and then we set standards. This is unchanged, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. You have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that a man cannot even lust after a woman in his heart or he's already committed adultery. So here's a principle As your pastor, you should know this. I have a conviction that I won't commit adultery. That's good, right? That's my biblical conviction. So I now have to set standards to protect my conviction. And my standards are, well, then I should probably spend time with Christy. I probably shouldn't live with other women than Christy. I probably should be careful with what I look at and what I view and who I'm around and where I go to protect my convictions. So there may be some areas out here in standard land where we are not all on the same page. We're not all doing the same thing. My conscience may not allow me because of my walk with the Lord and what I understand from Scripture, where the Holy Spirit has me, where you have freedom, I may not, and where I have freedom, you may not. But here's what he is saying. If 
your conscience pulls on you and you're asking, should I or shouldn't I? I'm just not released to do this. Here's, here's, here's a really good thought. Then don't. Don't go against your conscience. And I'm not just talking about your belly and I'm not talking about your experience and the way you were raised. I am talking about your scripturally founded convictions. Don't go against them. You say, well, it's unfortunate that they get to do more than me because my conscience is bothered. They're having more fun than I am. Just glorify God. Does it encroach on your conscience or not? And we'll end where we began. Does it exalt God? Simply put, does it glorify God? Right back to where we started. The motivation for everything that we do, even the little things like eating and drinking, does it glorify God? Every Christian should live with the fact that God's reputation is at stake in our behavior. That's a mouthful. Our goal should not be to see how much we can get away with, but to see what we can do to exalt His name and His character. One author said this. He said, there are four ways that you and I can be motivated to live for God. One of them is fear. You do external things because you don't want to get in trouble. You do things, you modify your behavior externally because you don't want to rock the boat. You want to go along with what everybody else is doing. You're motivated by fear. Another, he said, was obligation. I just do it out of a sense of duty. I go on about my business knowing that it's right. Even though there's nothing going on in here, I just do it because it's right to do. He said, there is also lust. Now, he didn't use it in the traditional sense. He meant lusting after your own satisfaction, your own performance, a lust to perform for God in the eyes of men so other people can see what you're doing, self-gratification. That's what motivates you. And then there is this, the glory of God, which we've been studying. His delight is what motivates me. His pleasure keeps me going in every single thing I do. Our emotions are constantly in flux. Life circumstances are ever-changing. If I am only engaging in spiritual things because I feel like it, we're in trouble. Because more often than not, we don't feel like it. And if I'm only engaged in spiritual things because life makes sense right now and the circumstances are there, we're going to be fatigued and we're going to get exhausted and we're going to get crabby and we're going to get distant. But if we are motivated by the glory of God, if we grasp the primary motivation that I have as a Christian to get up tomorrow and to continue to work my job and to continue to raise my kids and to continue to attempt to strive to have a good marriage and to live a holy life and to, and to do this, whatever this is, is for the glory of God, it doesn't wane because that mandate's unchanging. And I'm not just throwing it out there over your head like as you leave here, here's another layer of guilt you have, even if you're eating or drinking, no matter what it is that you're doing. Do it all to the glory of God, now go home. I get it, man. Here's how we can practically do it. What I'm engaged in, does this spiritually edify me or does this tear me down? We can answer that question. Does this have the potential to enslave me? Because if, if it does, if I'm being brought under the power, if, if my belly is my God and I'm minding earthly things, this is not glorifying God. Is this evangelizing the lost? Is this hurting my testimony? And then you bring in other principles from Scripture, right? Like abstain from all appearance of evil. Why would I abstain from all appearance of evil? Because of this principle. I don't want to be a hindrance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Does it exalt God? Does it encroach on my conscience where the Holy Spirit has me? Is this against my conviction? It's very practical. And here's what I would say to you. In your state and in my state, naturally speaking, we all are utterly bankrupt of the glory of God. But when we come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. We are adopted into the family of God by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We live under a new mandate, every one of us. Everything we do, all to the glory of God. You have to do it, and so do I. And there's only two things we can be doing. That, or we're a reproach.